Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Joshua here. I thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Beverly Lanzetta, the author of many books from A New Silence, The Monk Within, and Sacred Seasons, which is a daily reader that just came out last month. Beverly is a theologian and spiritual teacher. You can learn more about her work in the world at beverlylanzetta.net. In the conversation, Beverly and I discuss searching for wisdom, a new silence, seeking truth, the practice of humility, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Beverly Lanzetta. Well, to begin, Beverly, thank you for taking the time to connect today. As we were discussing before we hit record here, often to begin the conversation, since this is In Search of Wisdom, we start with a question around what led you down your path. And I was curious to maybe go back to when you were applying to your PhD program, maybe what was what was going through um, your mind there and what you were maybe searching for in that PhD program that you ultimately completed? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad, glad to be here with you, Josh. Um, I mean, I would say that my search for wisdom, what I would now call wisdom, really began when I was quite young. I mean, I remember being very avidly concerned about what truth was when I was uh, in high school and my early college years. And it was like, it was really a passionate quest. It wasn't just like a passing thought. It was sort of consumed my whole being for many years of just, you know, what is truth? What is love? Where does, where, where is wisdom in this world? Right. And then, um, when I was 29, I've written about this a number of times. Um, I had a life-changing religious slash mystical, whatever word you want to use, encounter with mystery, with the divine, um, that <clears throat> completely changed. I mean, like overnight changed my entire life. So, um, the doctoral program was kind of like sort of, um, what did I say, in the stream bed of that experience. And it was interesting because I didn't realize um, that it was possible to get a doctorate in theology. It sounds funny now, but I didn't even realize there was such a thing as getting a doctorate in theology. And so I had a kind of circuitous route to getting to Fordham. Um, I started out with a master's in human rights and, um, you know, violations of human rights in uh, various countries. And then I thought I was going into, you know, um, human rights and political science. And in the middle of that, I was, I was like, no, I started 
literally started writing the book Path of the Heart. That was my first book. First book, and I um, withdrew from that program. And that was the year my dad was also dying. And so I kind of had this reconfiguration of what am I doing? You know, why am I? Why am I moving into this field that doesn't co- correspond with the mystical life that I'd experienced? And um, and what's really interesting, I think, is that at that point I didn't even have the word mystical. In other words, it wasn't that I had come to that experience prepared with you know years of reading about religious texts or whatever. It just happened, and it wasn't until I got to Fordham that I realized. I actually put the term mystical <laughs> on the experience I had. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what that is. And um, so I wound up at Fordham through another circuitous route um, in a deep, a really deep desire to um, explore what was the passion of my life, which was, um, you know, how we um, seek truth. And in my case, how we grow closer to God or to the intimate, to mystery, right? And um, I was so uninformed in a funny kind of way that when I got to Fordham, I thought that I could study mysticism in every religion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing about that now, but my dissertation advisor was like, uh, I don't think that's possible to happen in in a lot of time you have here. And so... um, so then I, you know, I turned my attention, being at Fordham, a Catholic Jesuit university, to the depth of the Christian mystical tradition and branched out from there. I had some courses on, you know, Islamic mysticism, Hindu mysticism, but my core was um, Christian mysticism and the dialogue of religions. <clears throat> what I found there... Um, was very important to me because I wound up in my first semester having a course on Meister Eckhart. And how that happened, you know, is like how life happens, you know. And what I discovered in Meister Eckhart, which was um, so coincident with the experience I had, is he talks about the God beyond God, the desert of the Godhead that we go beyond, you know, the name tradition. In his case, he says we go beyond Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into um, the quiet desert, the hidden desert, right? And what do we find there? We find a breakthrough into uh, a more expansive reality and a kind of what I've called later like an unsaying of all the, you know, uh, attributes of tradition. And that was really, it it sort of created a spark in me about, oh, here is a person of the 14th century um, kind of shining a light on something I experienced in that that mystical night, let's say. And so from there, I I just started expanding out, you know, into uh, reading things like Raimondo Panikar, I don't know if you're familiar with him. But he he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was one of the most brilliant um, theologians of interreligious dialogue. He pioneered so much about what we might today call interspirituality, but he didn't call it that. He was talking about um, the path of leaving behind the exclusiveness of religion 
to move into um, an understanding of the interpenetration of the divine in all traditions. And he was, a Panikar was a Catholic priest who held three doctorates um, and spoke like, I don't know, seven languages or something. And um, <clears throat> he was brilliant. And, um, you know, he, he talked, you know, he talks about the, the aspect of Christ that you find in Hinduism. He talks about, um, you know, the, the ways in which Buddhism is reflected in, you know, the apophatic, the nothingness reflected in all traditions. And it was just this very enriching sense, again, affirming the experience I had of how the divine um, is present in so many forms and, and places and how we're called to, I felt called to acknowledge and affirm that diversity. <clears throat> the other great thing about Panikar was that he did not um, throw away the profound mystical grounding of the world's religions. He didn't try to make it like a universal commonality. He was saying, no, let's look at the diversity, the particularity of each tradition in its depth and honor that diversity, honor that depth of mystical insight, wisdom in these traditions. Um, <clears throat> and also I found that very helpful because, you know, I find in the mystical traditions of the world's religions such wisdom and beauty and pathways right, ways that we reflect on the divine or we reflect on ultimate reality, whatever term we want to use, right? Um, so um, I don't know. I just I felt like a door opened into this vast panorama of wisdom traditions and, um, you know, ways in which that we can be deeply contemplative, deeply embedded in a tradition or outside of a tradition doesn't really doesn't matter but open out into the grounding the universal ground you know of um of religious thought or wisdom traditions whatever term fits better for people when you you mentioned you didn't necessarily have the the verbiage of of mystical back then when you when you had this experience how did you describe and and make sense of that during that time it was so radical joshua i mean it literally changed my life overnight i was the experience lasted an entire day and night into the next day and um hmm. I just knew I had been encountered the divine. I knew that there was no, there was no question about it. It was beyond me. It was outside me. It was in me. It was, you know, it, it literally fell me to the ground physically. Um, and so there wasn't a question that this was God or the divine or, you know, whatever. But I had no verbiage to say, oh, this is something that happens in history. <clears throat> and so my first book actually was called Path of the Heart. And it was my attempt to recount the interior method, if you will, of this mystical journey. 
and I'd written it prior to going to, into my doctoral program. And my doctoral mentor, who became my mentor, Hubert Cousins, I brought the manuscript to him when I went to ask about the program and whether I, you know, I could join or, you know, could be admitted and so forth. Um, and he took a look at the book and he's the manuscript and he said, Oh, this is a mystical text. I was like, what? <laughs> and, and so he was instrumental in, in actually getting the book published. And, um, <clears throat> I think that that's where I began to understand that there is almost like a universal method, quote unquote, methodology of um, that many people throughout history have gone through. That's very unique, very particular to a time, place, social, you know, location, tradition, but that the the processes of it are, are seem very um, consistent. So, for example, like um, one would go through, which now I can use religious terms, but then I didn't have them, but one would go through a place of dying to the self, right? Or what we might call in Christianity the dark night of the soul or the great death or fana in, in Islam, you know, Sufism, annihilation. We're going to go through that dying of the self to... Um, to allow in this transcendent reality to surrender to um, a greater mystery, right? Um, we're going to experience um, loss of ego. We're going to experience, uh, you know, an understanding of humility or um, we're going to suffer through our own errors, Right. There's all of these stages that we go through that are strangely and amazingly coincident across traditions. Although the, you know, although the, um, like, like I said, the languages can be very different. Right. So you have someone like St. Augustine, you know, saying to, you know, is being pushed by, by the spirit, by God to like let go of his previous life. And, you know, in one of his most famous phrases, he says, uh, not now, God, not now. Like, I know you want me, but not now. I'm not, I'm not going there. <laughs> and, and then, you know, a while later, he goes through more trials and he's being, you know, like life is kind of pressing in on him and he's realizing he's, it's not adding up. And finally, he says, you know, he hears a voice. This is in the garden. And the voice says, Tola lege means take up and read. And he opens the Bible to a page. And he recognizes, okay, now, now, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do it. <laughs> and, uh, and so you have stories like this. Or the story of Banke, you know, the uh, 16th century Zen Buddhist monk who um, you know, wants to understand the, the meaning of bright virtue and travels all over the known part of his world trying to seek wisdom from teachers and he can't get an answer. <clears throat> and he's also near death physically. And all of a sudden, boom, he has like an enlightenment. So these, these uh, you know, this kind of journey of valleys and mountains and, um, you know, painful experiences and passionate longing to know. 
you know, one gets a glimpse of God or the divine or, or awe or mystery, and then you're like, well, how does my life fit in with that? Right? How do how does where I'm living reconcile with this great gift I've been given of the moment of wonder? And that usually begins a process of, you know, sometimes called purgation or purification or self-analysis, right? We begin to question, well, is this all there is? You know, the daily life, the secular life, etc. So this is what was so interesting to me. It was like, here I was writing this journey that I realized later when I started reading mystical texts had a pattern, a, you know, a method in it <laughs> that um, was totally intrinsic. I didn't know there was such a thing, right? Um, and that's when um, it was at Fordham where I began to feel permission or free to talk about the mystical life. I never used that word. I never, I never told anybody about my experience ex- except the two people that had been with me during the time this happened. Uh, And so, and I also learned later in teaching at the university that, you know, introducing students to this inner life, it gave them permission as well to, uh, to explore that part of their natures. What is an interior journey, right? We have the outer journey, you know, let's be successful. Let's find a job. Let's, you know, but what happens to the inner journey, the, the longing, the unfulfilled longing of the soul, to to make meaning to um, to experience life at another depth. In in the new silence, you you write we we enter a new silence as we learn about inner spirituality and practice uh, multi religious or hybrid religions. Why is that important? And and maybe any thoughts that you have around that pull. It seems like so many great you know, mystics or, or theologians of the past have really expanded out to, uh, to become knowledgeable of, of, of different religions and different spiritual paths, I guess. I, I like that question. I think I would say two things, two things immediately come to mind. One is that in the, real, in the true profundity of a tradition, this is what I've experienced, and I think I've read this in many mystics, when we really, really give ourselves to the search for truth, truth always breaks out of its form. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if you, you know, let's just say you study the, the mystical journey of a tradition, let's, let's use Christianity because that's what we're mostly talking about. You'll find at the end of, not the end, but towards the culmination of the journey, the journey is going to enter a darkness, a silence, an unknowing. Um, it's going to leave behind name and image into um, into something inscrutable, something that cannot be completely captured in language. And my and my experience of that is both reading these texts and also just living in this realm. Let's say is that um, true mystery breaks out into the universal. It, I mean, when we get into that depth, we've touched a core of something that informs every spirituality. You know, it's like, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, 
Um, you know, let's say John of the Cross might talk about the soul must practice an imitation of Christ on the cross. Well, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by imitation of Christ on the cross? And then he says, we have to follow the path of nala, 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 nothing, 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 right? So he's talking about that we're, we're relinquishing everything into our passion for, the, for truth, for the holy, and that relinquishing, that surrender, breaks out into something we cannot conceptualize on our own. So the ultimate, you know, I wouldn't say the ultimate, but the, because we don't know what the ultimate is because we're finite, but okay. So the, um, the depth, let's say the profound depth of the experience may be an heightened feeling of, of your beloved. If your beloved is Jesus or Buddha or, or Muhammad or whomever, right? It may heighten that experience of your beloved. And at the same time, it opens out into every other beloved. And that's, you know, that to me is part of the, part of the truth and part of the wisdom is that it's always becoming and unbecoming. It's coming into being and it's letting go. It's letting go and coming into being. And so we also participate in that birthing and dying process, birthing and dying process. And as we, I believe, as we enter deeper and deeper into the true wisdom of a tradition, we discover that place, right? So that like, you know, even Arabi, the great Sufi mystic can say, you know, my heart is a meadow for gazelles. It's, you know, has the kaban, it has the Christian cross, it has everything in there. Okay. And, and that's kind of what I feel that there's a, you know, there's a profound um, interpenetration of wisdom. So that's one dimension of it. The other dimension I think is, is very um, uh, immediate, which is, you know, faith rises from the ground up. Faith rises from people. Even though we read in history of there's the great masters, you know, the great teachers, the messiahs, the, the, the prophets. But always faith is rising up from the ground, from the person, from the person's encounter with mystery, right? In that quickening moment before illumination happens, right? In that moment where there's, not, there's neither this nor that. Right, which is you know that great phrase from the Upanishads, "Medi Medi," neither this nor that. It's some quickening moment, okay. And um, so, what's happening today, as I've witnessed in my almost fifty years of teaching, that from the ground up, there is a new faith tradition happening, and it's a tradition that is as authentic as any religious inception in history, whether, you know, it was Judaism or, you know, the Upanishads, whatever. But we don't give it credibility or we try to, because it's present, we often try to diminish it. And in the early days, let's say, you know, years ago, still happens today, but more so in the early days, interreligious dialogue, interfaith dialogue was kind of 
looked down upon as just a smorgasbord of people grabbing from different traditions and there was no grounding and etc. And And some of that probably, I mean, I think was true to some extent. But on the other hand, people are having deep faith experiences where they want to leave behind the exclusiveness of their tradition. They want to, it's not like they're throwing away the whole tradition, but they're like, what is, inju- what is unjust in my tradition? What is um, segregating in my tradition? This doesn't speak to my heart. What is, you know, excessive sin in my tradition? Whatever, right? And then some people are literally being called outside of tradition, you know? And um, what I'm trying to do is, is really affirm and celebrate that these are authentic experiences, they are ways that we're being called in this time, in this point in history. Um, and some of it is comes about, and some of it we articulate through interfaith dialogue, through learning about each other's traditions. Um, but some of it is sui generis. It arises from our own souls. You know, it arises from the divine speaking in us. And um, we shouldn't discount it because... It's an authentic um, yearning, right? It's an authentic yearning in one's being. What are your thoughts, Beverly, on wisdom without tradition or without faith? Um, On this podcast, we get into philosophy quite a bit, and and you can look at, you think, I think of, of reading some of the philosophers of the past that maybe didn't have a a faith or you know a particular mystical tradition but the language and the perspective of the world is closely aligned to to what you would maybe you know read in an Eckhart or you know some of these mystics around impermanence and the interconnectedness and compassion and love how do you how do you see that? I'm curious your thoughts of, of wisdom or truth without without faith. I think it's very, very powerful and very relevant. I mean, I think they're just, you know, different, um, let's say, um, approaches or language structures that, um, that a person is called toward, right? I mean, you know, for me, my experience has set me on a particular path, right? And I, I don't even call it belief because it was so immediate. Belief isn't even an appropriate word. It's just like it, it you know, it reconformed me into a path, and that's the way it is. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. At the same time, I love, you know, um, for example. Um, for a number of years there, I was reading, who was one of my dissertation mentors, John Caputo, who writes a lot about um, deconstruction and Derrida and Derrida and the mystics and, you know, using sort of non-religious language to, appro- you know, to approach this mystery in which we're all embedded, right? Or the, this universe of, of meaning, let's call it that, right? Um, so I don't think that you know, having uh, a religious tradition 
um, or have, you know, or being able to draw on a religious tradition is necessary. I think they're great philosophical texts. At the same time, I still feel like the process of the transformation is similar. Right. So like, I don't know, I still have this feeling and I would have to talk to a lot of people in philosophy to find out, but you know, that the process of internal um, grappling with the journey of truth would most likely would have some of those similar stages. Like I talked about, you know, self-analysis, purification, you know, dying to the old self, etc. Um, and I think also what's interesting is, you know, in the mystical traditions, we talk about different types of mysticism. Like there's the mysticism of language. There's the mysticism of the historical event. There's the mysticism of nature. There's, you know, it's not just the mysticism within faith, right? So, um, the idea of, of if we use the, the definition of mysticism as, in religious terms, you would say mysticism is the immediate presence of God or the sacred to a person's consciousness, right? So that you have an immediate feeling of that. But we could also say mysticism is um, the immediate presence of awe or you know, the numinous, as Rudolf Otto called it, who, you know, who wrote the idea of the holy, that it's, we're encountering something beyond the five senses, uh, however we're describing it. So uh, that, I think that's, that's also a very important path that people take. And again, should, should not be um, diminished in their journey because they're not ascribing to a certain, you know, language or tradition the only thing I would say, and I think this is relevant, is that we have so much, um, what's the word I want to use? Um, kind of a critical reaction, uh, oftentimes against religion, um, particularly in the West against Christianity. And, and for good, many cases, for good reason, we hear about these extreme fundamentalists or punitive or whatever, right? But the, the sad part about that is every religion contains within it some really deep pearls of, of really jewels of insight. And when we throw out, you know, when we refuse to look at those or we just say, well, they're all, you know, painful or stupid or they're not relevant or whatever, you know, we, we miss out on the incredible tradition you know, of, of that exists that we are inheritors of, um, you know, from thousands of years of humans, not some authority, but actual people having had experiences of the divine, of some mysterious, transcendent, numinous reality. And, um, you know, in a sense, I wish we 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 had more access to that without all the baggage that goes with it because there's just such a wealth of um of meaning in these journeys that humans have traveled for thousands of years and have written about and have disseminated right um so that's 
you know, that's something that I think about at times that, um, you know, the beauty that exists when we get out of the identification of having to be this particular religion or having to react against a particular religion. And there's also so much misinformation and actually lack of education in what is available to us. I think one of the similarities along this particular path um, is what you start the book with is, is around humility. Um, humility seems to be such a, a big word and, and can get kind of misunderstood. How do you describe humility and, and why it's so important? I mean, the first thing I'll say is that humility for me is in response to awe. And I feel that that is so important to keep in mind because we hear the word humility and we often hear it as punitive. You know, you're not humble enough. You're too arrogant. You're this or that or whatever. Right? And, and we all are, of course, most of us, you know, on and off, we are all of those things. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> humility goes back to that journey I was talking about earlier that's so universal that we have a moment of just speechlessness before the wonder, whether it's a sunset, whether it's, you know, a saguaro in the desert or the sequoias or some beauty in the world, the birth of a child. We're just like in a moment of wonder, of awe. And it's that awe that places us in the context of the cosmos like we are not the center of everything, right? We are not in charge of everything. Our ego isn't the most important thing that's operating in the universe. And it, 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 if, it's, if we allow the experience to enter into us, we begin to see, as I said earlier, you know, how far away our life is from that moment of grace, if you want to call it, that moment of um, wonder transcendence. And so in the beginning to me, humility is a kind of like a bowing down, right? I bow down to the transcendent. I offer myself um, as a pilgrim or a disciple or whatever word you want to use to the search for, to not only for the search for that truth or that wonder, but devoting my life to seeing it manifested. Okay, so humility, um, it begins from, to me, it begins from this sense of, I'm so blessed to be, to have a moment of this experience. And because of that, how do I, express my gratitude how do I live up to that and the way I live up to it and I'm using my own language is to say that I seek to be empty of all the those attributes of my personality that um, would try to harm or try to segregate or try to be ambitious at the expense of other people would do injury etc right so it, lead, it it's not just a, a momentary experience. It's an experience that pierces your soul and says, what can I do? What can I, how can I be? Um, 
like unto what I've been given here for this brief moment, right? So, you know, and we would say that in in that place, it's not just about knowing. We just don't want to know about. We want to be it. We want to. We want our ontology, our being, to be um, representative of what we've been given, of this great wisdom we've seen, this moment. So that's, for me, one of the first issues of, of humility. And then, of course, just on another piece of it is that humility comes from the Latin word humus, humus, which means earth. Um, and so it's very earthly. We're connected. We are of the earth. We, we belong to each other. And so, you know, it's also an experience of love that we are part of a whole together. And how can my life and my being uh, advance that experience of wholeness and love? Um, so, you know, so it's, it's something... You know, there are these qualities of being, and, and I think I call them in the book something like the divine table of elements, because I think of it like the actual um, chemical table of elements, you know, where we have like hydrogen and oxygen, and we, that makes up all of life, right? <laughs> so the divine table of elements are these, are these virtues or attributes of, you know, wisdom, which is love, compassion, humility, you know, mercy, nonviolence, beauty, all of that, of which we are also composed. We're composed of them. They're in our beings. They're in our souls. And so how do we um, enhance them? How do we, you know, how do we combine them to make the world around us more holy, more beautiful, whatever, right? So, um that's why it's an interior journey. It's not an intellectual thing. It's how do we allow our souls to flower in these, in these virtues and these attributes of, of mystery, let's say. Um, and, um, and it's to, you know, it's to affirm that we're in an interdependent circle. We're not, you know, when we get a breakthrough of awe, we realize, wait a minute, we're actually not here alone. <laughs> we think we are, you know, but actually there's something going on out there that's always present that we're not paying attention to. And so that interdependent circle of life, right, is the essence of the unity. The interdependent is the essence of, um, you know, humility and mystical wonder, if you will. So I think that the way it comes down that, you know, humility is self-denying or extremely ascetic or false modesty is not what it is. And, you know, when we read some of the saints and stuff, like um, I was teaching, you know, I was teaching a class on humility and I was reading that phrase from St. Francis, which is in here, where he wants to be a useless utensil. And someone in the class was like, this is so ascetic. I don't, that's ridiculous. Who wants to be a useless utensil? <laughs> and I was like, but see what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, I want to 
you know, I want to give away. I love the divine so much. Or in Francis's case, he would talk about lady poverty. I love lady poverty so much. I want to unite with her. I want to give away all my falseness. So I want to be like the useless utensil because, you know, and I think, I think there's something, you know, in so many people of this unfulfilled longing to be passionate about something, to unite with, in intimacy with other people, with mystery, right? We, we spend so much time um, pushing each other away. Uh, we're really, I think on some level, all we want to do is, is just be connected, like feel the true meaning of love, the true meaning of being embraced. When you bring up the, the saints and the mystics and kind of the idea of seeing in, in paradox or this polarity, I, as you describe that, it, it makes me think of the kind of that both and thinking. Do you see it like that? The, you know, useless utensil, but also at the same time, you know, extremely useful, you know, for the world. I do. And I think that that's also a phrase that, that is expressed in, let's say, the circles of interfaith or interreligious dialogue. It's, it's not either or, it's both and, right? I mean, you know, for example, Panikar that I mentioned earlier, who was a Catholic priest, you know, at one point in his life, he went through this deep, um, really wrenching experience of, of saying, you know, I'm leaving behind the exclusiveness of my faith, he said, which for me is not just a crossing, but a cross. I've had to go through a cross of pain to, to experience that, to realize that I can be both Catholic, Christian, and Buddhist, and Hindu, and it doesn't diminish any of them. I am I feel that I, you know, I, I dwell in all of them. Um, and so uh, there's so much, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of um, biased in a way, or we're, you know, I'm trying to think of the right word. We're kind of indoctrinated that if we, if we become both and, we're betraying something. What we're learning is both and is also both and also will move into that place of opening out. I like that idea that you raised that it's not either or, right? I was, I was really impressed how many practical exercises are in, in your book. So you, you've really taken the time. It's a very practical book. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on something I read recently by Scott Barry Kaufman. He wrote the the book Transcendence recently, which I'm not super familiar with, but I read a an article. It's called The Science of Spiritual Narcissism. And he's brought up this concern of of spiritual practices fooling us, if you will, and you know, that we're growing or, you know, this visual image that we're climbing a mountain, but our ego is actually growing. And it makes me think of some of the the gurus, you know, that have kind of come up with some uh, not not doing so uh, spiritually enlightened things in the in the news Does that resonate with you at all. And, and how do we avoid and maybe identify that we're on a, 
you know, a, a path that's growing our, our ego. You know, I think that's very, I haven't read his book and I, I don't know what he's exactly referring to, but the way you describe it, I think he, I think there's a lot of validity to that. And this is where, um, you know, again, in the classical traditions, you know, provide a, a lot of guidance. So for example, Thomas Merton would say that the more I grew in, you know, the more I grew in spirit, the more mature my spiritual life became, the more I needed a spiritual director, the more I needed someone mm. to help me recognize where my ego is, you know, going amok because now it's more subtle than it was before <laughs> when I knew I was completely off my path, you know, but now I, you know, sometimes I can't tell. So that's where I think these, you know, the hard work, and it is very true. And I've seen it where people will use, uh, exercises or meditative traditions or prayer life or whatever to kind of avoid the deeper issues that the deconstruction that is going on in any authentic, you know, journey, whether it's religious, non-religious, whatever, right? That there is going to be a moment of darkness. There's going to be a moment of the soul's anguish. There's going to be a moment of self-analysis. There's going to be times of, of, of deep disturbance because we're moving deeper and deeper into truth and we're shedding what is standing in the way. So, um, you know, the idea that we're just going to pray and meditate and that's going to take care of everything is, is definitely not the history of, of, the, of the journey. Right. Um, one a good example, and I think I think it's in this book. I can't even. Yeah, I think it is where I talk about radical self honesty. That is a phrase that you know comes out of the desert abbas and amas, where you know the 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 young novice out in the desert goes to his his or her master and asks, you know, is is being wants to go and bring everything looking great and shiny to the master, doesn't want to disturb the master with his petty, what he thinks are petty issues, where it's going to be difficult. It's going to cause the deconstruction of the ego. It's going to um, lead us closer to emptiness and humility. And all of that is propelled by the person's own desire passionate desire to know truth and you know and that's how one follows the path and to be attentive so yes i think that you know anything in life can be used in an addictive manner to avoid what we don't want to look at <laughs> and, you know we get people who who really act like they're so you know they're holier than others because they've spent you know 40 years meditating or something but maybe in their interiority, they're actually suffering that they, they haven't, you know, they haven't looked at those issues. Um, and so, you know, that's where I, you know, I love what Merton said, where it's like, yeah, the more mature I grow in my life, the more subtle I am and <laughs> the more I am avoiding the things I don't want to look at. Well, this has been great, Beverly. Our, our time is flown by we generally ask a kind of a standard final wrap-up question around wisdom but i wanted to read something you wrote real quick and and maybe get your brief thoughts to to wrap up the conversation is if we could 
Um, as the self is deepened, the person is a teaching. To humbly follow the path is itself both the way and the end. This is true wisdom. Could you say more on that to wrap up the conversation? I, I think I would go back to what I said earlier, which is to be in the stream of wisdom is to become it. It is not just to know about it. And we have, you know, that's again where the understanding that the inner self, the soul is evolving, it's growing, it is becoming, right? It's not just an intellectual absorption of knowledge. And in order to move from knowing to becoming, we have to be willing to sacrifice the self, surrender the self, right? Walk through the door that is that has been depicted in traditions from time immemorial, that we have to walk through the door of letting go of the attachment to our own thoughts, our own ways of being. And so to live one's life with a passionate intention to be wisdom, right? Which is not something we can make happen. And that's another place where the subtlety of the journey arises. We're, we're so used to thinking that we're going to do something. We're going to make something happen. But in the deeper life, it's something that comes to us. So, you know, using religious language, we would say at the, at the active part of the journey, we're seeking God, we're seeking truth. But in the passive part of the journey, God or truth is seeking us. And God or truth is working in us. And that's where the surrender comes in. We surrender to the working, the reception in us. And we then, you know, begin to experience what it feels like to not just know about humility, but to experience moments of it. Not just to know about love, but to experience what is unconditional love. Not, you know, um, etc. Compassion, mercy. It's like an interior touching of that universe of meaning. And it transforms one's life. It trans so there's why I say it's both the beginning and the end. It's the journey that grows ever deeper. Well, that is beautiful and a great way to wrap up. Beverly, I thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Great questions. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.